Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and I'm here today with my good friend and co-host, Dr. Bruno Fernandez. Bruno, how are you doing today? Doing good, Sean. Glad to be here. Good, good. Uh, so I know we're both very excited about our guest today. We've already uh, called him a star in our little uh, workup before the before we started recording. So we're going to be interviewing Dr. Walter Wittich, who is the chair of DeafBlind International, among many, many other titles. So, uh, Walter, welcome to the show. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. So I was hoping we could kick this off uh, talking actually about DeafBlind International. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about the organization, what is, you know, the organization's mission, what do you do, and what would your primary roles be as chair of the organization? Yeah, so the first thing that I have to clarify is that I just got promoted by you because you are presuming I am the chair of the whole organization. It turns out I chair the research network of DeafBlind International. So DeafBlind International is an international non-for-profit organization basically with the mission to facilitate globally anything and everything that has to do with deafblindness, whether that is the policy development, research, networking on the international level, facilitating collaborations between industry and device users for the development of communication technologies, you name it. Basically, Deafblind International is trying to get people together and one way it does that is that it functions through networks. Uh, so I lead one of these networks and that's the research network, but there is, for example, a communication network. There is a network that deals only with young people and young adults and youth, mostly for the purpose of social participation and social interaction. So there are all these different networks that have a different purpose. They're all global. And in my case, I get to run the research network. It is something that we created about six years ago. And uh, the purpose is to connect researchers like myself that have a specific interest in deafblindness. It turns out there are not that many of us uh, that has to do a little bit with money as well because deafblindness is still a marginalized small group of individuals and they don't always get the recognition that they deserve. And so there are not that many research careers that are entirely viable, focusing on deafblindness alone. But I'm one of those people. And so I try to find my own kind, so to speak, around the globe. And that is what we do in part during the research network. But we also try to operate as a knowledge translation tool because ideally our research is doing things that are useful. So we connect a lot with people that live with combined vision and hearing loss. We figure out what their priorities are. What do they actually want? What can we do to make their lives better? And so use this integrated kind of knowledge translation approach <clears throat> to take the research agenda forward. Does the deafblind organization focus only uh, on, on individuals that have, uh, there are other deaf, uh, that are both deaf and blind, or does it also welcome uh, researchers and patients that are uh, either deaf or blind? So this is a beautiful question because it gets to the core of something that Deafblind International is really interested in. This is supposed to be as inclusive as possible. 
So this now, for example, touches on deaf blindness in cells. A lot of people, when they hear deaf blindness, they think Helen Keller or that level of impairment. But it turns out that the uniqueness of deaf blindness is that you have some level of vision loss. You have some level of hearing loss. You do not need to be fully deaf and fully blind. This goes across the entire spectrum. For example, if you look at some of your older family members, maybe you have a grandfather or grandmother or an uncle or an aunt somewhere that has a partial vision loss and a partial hearing loss, but you know they still get around to do the things they need to do. It's just a little harder. They are part of this as well. It goes across the entire age spectrum. It goes across all levels of severity, but it also goes across all professions involved whether these are tactile sign language interpreters, whether these are ophthalmologists that deal with clients that have hearing loss, whether these are uh, audiologists or optometrists that need to communicate with clients that have both impairments, uh, whether these are family members, uh, could be brothers or sisters, it could be the children of people that are living with deaf blindness. Uh, basically, anybody has their own specific corner where they can be participating in this network, and we try to make everybody heard. That's a, that's very cool. Uh, you, I mean, besides being uh, uh, having this role with the organization of putting researchers together, uh, you're also a very active researcher yourself. Uh, can you give us maybe like a brief overview of the research projects that your lab is uh, currently involved on? So my general approach to my research interests is that I'm interested in all things sensory. But in the last couple of years, I've uh, discovered that of course life is complicated. And so I'm more and more fascinated by research into things that are more complicated. Uh, there is a growing body of evidence that there is a link between sensory loss and cognitive changes as people get older. And uh, dementia is a big topic. Dementia is also a big fear of a lot of people. And so it turns out that there may be ways on how we can protect the brain by taking care of our eyes and ears. Uh, I'm part of a research network that's called the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging, the CCNA. Uh, it's a research network of over 350 people around the country in Canada that are all studying some aspect of neurodegeneration. Now, this goes all the way from the molecule and the cell and the channel in the membrane down to population health. Uh, we're divided into many different teams. And so I co-lead Team 17 together with Natalie Phillips, who is a cognitive neuropsychologist at Concordia. And our team uh, focuses on sensory cognitive aging. I think that there is a lot of interesting and important work to be done because we all try to figure out the best way to get older. And that includes how to best get old with your changing senses. Um, we kind of always sell this idea that to be optimally aging, you have to do three things. You have to stay socially active, physically active, and mentally active. But sensory changes are threatening all three of these because 
social interaction may be changed if you cannot see or hear your communication partners well. Being physically active becomes difficult if you may not see where it is you're running. It's also that, uh, for example, hearing loss has been correlated with problems in balance. So people have a harder time exercising if uh, there is a hearing loss present. And then uh, cognitively being active, mentally being active, when people do things like Sudoku games or, or various other activities that require your mind to be engaged, but many of these things become harder if you have trouble seeing or hearing. So for us to stay physically, socially, and mentally engaged, we need to take care of our senses. And that is a big part of my current research uh, program. So I was hoping to just maybe dive into that a little bit before I move on to the, the, the slew of other questions. So mm-hmm. as somebody who has vision loss and uh, you know, I'm intrigued by you're saying that there's some sort of link when, as people are aging, this uh, sensory uh, loss of certain senses or um, declining abilities in certain senses and cognitive impairments. Is that uh, how how would that play out? So, for example, is somebody who is younger who loses their their vision or hearing or other senses, um, how would uh, some sort of cognitive consequence come about? Is it because they they then, like you said, they can't participate in the same sports or have the same social interactions the same way. That's what leads to that. Or is there some other mechanism at play or does it not affect young people? So this is an excellent question because it reminds me of a question that a graduate student of mine actually posed at ARVO, at the Association for Research in Vision and Ophthalmology. She herself is blind. She has been blind since early in her childhood. And so here we are sitting at Arvo in a session where an epidemiologist talks about this association between declines in vision and declines in cognition. And so she beautifully walked up to the microphone with her guide dog and she said, well, you know, you kind of make it sound that if you're blind, you're demented. And here I am blind, but I don't think I'm demented. (laughs) So this, this does not really work that way. And that is entirely true. So we're not talking about your level of vision determines your level of cognition. That is not what's happening here. What happens is that uh, we sort of have to split two ideas. There may be some mechanisms where changes in vision and changes in cognition may actually be symptoms of an underlying process. Um, For example, macular degeneration or glaucoma involve the retina and the optic nerve. The retina and the optic nerve, according to biohistology, are part of the central nervous system, much like the brain and the spine. So if you have a degenerative disease in your brain, it would make sense that there could be degeneration that we can observe in the retina, for example. And that is exactly what we see, that there are changes in retinal nerve fiber layer thickness in people with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, Why? Because looking at the retina, you're actually looking at a piece of the brain. So there are some anatomy and physiology pieces that play here, but there are also other mechanisms that may be more psychosocial. Uh, The structure and the the integrity of brain very much depends on us using it. It's a bit the use it or lose it philosophy. If you acquire a sensory impairment later in life, And you have, here's the key, 
not yet learned how to compensate for that, then this acquired sensory impairment may change how you live. It may change how you interact, how you engage. If you are like, take me, I spend eight to 10 hours a day reading, right? This is my life. Uh, I get paid to read and think and then have ideas. If I would be somehow impaired in my ability to read, I'm suddenly not using my brain the way I used to. So this association in sensory and uh, cognitive change and decline uh, could also have a mechanism that simply looks at how you're engaging in life. Uh, you may not be as social anymore if you suddenly can't tell the facial expression of the person you're talking to and you don't know whether they're serious or sarcastic because you can't tell what their eyebrows or their mouth is doing. Right? So you may socially suddenly withdraw because you're not in a situation anymore where you feel like you fit in. It's that, that kind of change. In your case, if you are living with your uh, visual impairment right now, you have already a ton of mechanisms of how you are handling this. And so from that perspective, you're cognitively engaged, physically engaged, you're living your life in a full way. But if something else would add to this changing later on, let's say you would acquire a bit of a hearing loss, suddenly some of your coping mechanisms for your vision loss may not work as well. Right now, hearing is essential for you to do this podcast. If you would have trouble with hearing my answers, you may choose to withdraw from the podcast and that will change your life and that may affect your cognition. No, and that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And you, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I depend very much on my, my ears for a lot of things. Like this before this podcast recording this morning, my wife and I went for a run and uh, I don't go running on my own anymore, but um, she's a good running partner. So we'll go together. And, you know, if I start to veer too far off, she'll, just grab me by the, grab me by the, uh, I'll say grab me by the neck, but no, <laughs> just grab me by the elbow and pull me, pull me closer and say, okay, no, we're getting too far apart or something. Uh, but yeah, some of those coping mechanisms, like you said, would definitely um, have to be re, re reassessed or altered. Should I uh, lose hearing or um, sense of touch or something else? Um, I was hoping we could talk about the Canadian longitudinal study on aging. Um, I've read a little bit about this, but I was hoping that maybe you could explain what the purpose of the study is and maybe what role your research group is playing in the project. Yeah, the CLSA, the Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging, is uh, one of those pieces of jewelry in the Canadian research uh, environment because it is a huge population-based study that measures, I would say, easily over 2,000 variables in a set of 50,000 Canadians uh, that were all recruited at the, at the time, uh, at the age between 45 and 85, and they're going to be followed for at least 20 years. And uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to talk about the CLSA now because we're kind of living in the golden era of epidemiology simply because experimental research has become very difficult during a pandemic. You know, the majority of my experimental work required us to go into the homes of older adults 
with sensory impairment in order to you know, do things like test the accessibility of assistive devices. And of course, for the last 14 months, we haven't been going to anybody's home because nobody's going to anybody's home. We're all sitting in our own home. And so suddenly access and use of databases like the CLSA has become uh, an important piece in advancing research forward. When you ask what does the CLSA do, I answer what does the CLSA not do? It allows researchers across the country to access an incredibly rich data set. And we now uh, start having follow-up data on these people as well. And so you can examine any and all aspects that may or may not be related to aging somehow and see how we Canadians on a population level develop. These 50,000 people are chosen to represent Canadians geographically across the entire country. And so there are certain statistical weights that can be used in order to then extrapolate information from these 50,000 people onto what the Canadian image looks like in general. Uh, this is valuable because life, especially in the further Northern regions should not be predicted by data that comes from people that live in the South, right? So uh, our Canadian picture is potentially more, collabor uh, more comparative to what goes on in Northern Europe, right? We need to be careful when we do comparisons. Uh, not everything that comes out of statistics from the US, for example, can automatically apply to us. There are many things in the Nordic countries that are uh, more comparable or sometimes even more comparable to what goes on in Australia, simply because of the size of the country and the distance between people. The interest that our CCNA team has in the CLSA data uh, focuses back down to this idea of sensory cognitive aging because the CLSA data set has subjective and behavioral data on vision and hearing. People go through an eye exam, an ear exam. Uh, they're also asked about their senses to see how they themselves perceive their sensory health. We've got various pieces of data about their cognitive functioning, but also about their social engagement, loneliness. You know, many of these uh, variables that we propose may be part of this adventure of cognitive aging. And so now we're spending the next couple of years exploring these data more in order to figure out if there are specific interventions or variables that we can do something about in order to protect the brain as people get older. Just to follow on that one, you know, you hit on something that I, I don't know where this other data point came out of. It might've been the Harvard's men's study um, or anyhow, uh, it was something along the lines of, and I'm going to, I'm going to completely botch this, but it was something on lines of um, at age, let's say 50, uh, your uh, self-reported quality of relationships um, was a better predictor than blood pressure of your health status, let's say 10 years later or 20 years later. Uh, so it's just interesting that, that uh, you kind of talk about the, you know, how important some of those um, social interactions really are to someone's overall well-being. Yeah. The, you know, the World Health Organization has built a truly biopsychosocial model of functioning and activity and social engagement with the idea that, yes, there are physiological 
biological and anatomical correlates and predictors of how well people will do. But if you ask anybody in a health-related profession, if you stand in front of two people that may present with very comparable diseases or impairments, and then you ask them how they're doing, one of them may tell you that they're doing fine, they're handling this, they're doing this. And the other one is just deep in depression, can't do anything and doesn't know what's happening. How we all individually respond to whatever comes into our lives depends on who you are and how you do. It may depend on resilience. It may depend on your education. It, some of it may depend on your race, your sex, your gender. Uh, life is complicated and I, I love it. I think it's so fascinating to study this and to figure out how and why it is so complicated. Taking a bit of a turn, I, I recently came across your YouTube channel and uh, I, I found it like fascinating because it's quite rare for, for an academic like, to go all out and, and have a, a YouTube as a vehicle to, to share uh, knowledge and whatnot. Uh, can, you, can you tell us like, what was your motivation to start a YouTube channel and the, your goals and what kind of content like, you, you usually share? This is a great opportunity for a quick shout out to Jonathan Jerry, who works at the Office of Science Communication at McGill. Jonathan used to be my research assistant many, many years ago, and he woke me up at the time to the fact that there are social media out there that are a tool that most scientists don't use. Uh, now, this goes in parallel with many of the funding agencies actually putting more and more emphasis on knowledge translation. The researchers are traditional, more used to sitting in their lab, doing some science, and then when they get around to it, they will publish a paper and there will be seven people that read that who are scientists like themselves. Much of that has changed in the last couple of decades because public funding, you know, should make things publicly available. People find it interesting. The internet has given us access to information. And so it turns out much like our uh, interview today, you know, a lot of this information may live somewhere, but how can you find it? And so at some point I decided to indulge in my own vanity and I say, all right, let's do this channel and let's put things there that I can find of myself where I talk about deafblindness, where I talk about vision and hearing rehabilitation, about treatments, I even have a lecture in there that I gave about deafblindness at some point. Once in a while, I will do a TV or radio or a podcast interview. And if I have the right to display it, uh, I will put it on the channel. And uh, it's, it's a good place for people to start if they want to know something about deafblindness. You know, the, it's open to the world. It's open to anyone because information in my mind needs to be free. People need to know what's going on, they need to be able to have access to facts. And uh, that's part of my tool. Well, by all means, if, uh, if, if you're so inclined and want to share this interview on your, on your YouTube channel at a later time, feel, feel free. I'd be happy to, uh, happy to send it your way. And again, this is, this is why we do this, right? It's, it's really to um, give people access to, to information and, and uh, um, really, yeah, just basically bridge that knowledge gap. So um, my 
own little research background uh, in the last week or two uh, tells me that you, uh, your background um, really spans a lot of domains. Uh, so we're talking optometry, we're talking uh, neuroscience, psychology, uh, even musical theater. So I, I was hoping that uh, you could maybe, you know, give us the, the Coles notes of your, of your journey um, from, you know, all these different backgrounds or why you got into all these different backgrounds and how it maybe led to what you're doing now professionally. And uh, just to throw another question within a question, um, why you became so uh, interested in deaf blindness and research. Thank you for asking this. Uh, so the way this unfolded is that when I was just a young one, um, I discovered my passion for dancing. And so I actually spent the first 15 years of my professional thinking life as a professional dancer. Uh, I train, I come from Germany originally, from Munich, and then I trained in Vienna in the musical theater program there. And uh, my very first job actually was in Toronto uh, with Toronto Dance Theater. And so I spent a good 10 years dancing across Canada uh, in Vancouver and Toronto in Calgary, and eventually in Montreal. This is how I came to Montreal. I was working here for Ballet Jazz and Royale for a while. And then uh, when I turned 30, this kind of this chapter closed and the question became, now what? Um, there's an interesting period in a dancer's life when you're still well enough to do something else. You're also young enough to do something else, but at the same time, you're still young enough to keep dancing because you know, I have friends that are in their 40s or 50s that are still performing, but you have to make a choice at some point. And I was too curious about life to only do this. And so I decided to go back to school. So when I turned 30, I did an undergraduate degree in psychology. Why psychology? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, one of the advisors at the program at the time said, oh, so you're an artist you've been dealing with the human condition through art, and now you're gonna do psychology, studying the human condition through science. And that made a lot of sense to me. Something that a lot of my dance colleagues still find weird today is why I went into science. Uh, and it turns out to me, this is just as creative as being an artist because coming up with a good research question is a creative process. So I don't really find this so different than being an artist because you do need a lot of creativity. So after this undergrad in psychology and I did a master's in experimental psychology at Concordia and to learn more about vision, visual perception, it was at that time that I found out about low vision and visual impairment and how visual impairment may change visual perception of reality and how people cope with this kind of change in later life. And then through some logistic changes in my and my supervisor's life, we decided that uh, we would switch over to McGill. And so I did my PhD in neuroscience at McGill. Uh, in, it's very funny because at the time there were about 35 students in my year. And besides me, there was only one other person who was actually working with people. Everybody else was studying rats, mice and monkeys and various cells. Uh, the other person who studied people actually was studying suicide. So I thought, you know, here I am working, the only one working with the living. And uh, it was during that period that I discovered 
um, people with Usher syndrome. I was doing some research on visual field impairment and realized that many of my participants with Usher syndrome don't only have a visual field impairment, but also have hearing loss. It changed communication with my participants. I really questioned a lot the relevance of my work if I'm only looking at one tiny aspect. And so I had the opportunity to do a postdoctoral fellowship in audiology afterwards at the Institut Geriatrique. And that is when I discovered that deafblindness as a starting point for me is exactly where I need to be. Here are the two main senses that are both somehow impaired and people are handling this, are coping, are discovering new ways of living, new ways of communicating, new ways of thinking. <clears throat> the use of tactile sign language as a communication form to me is simply fascinating. The first time I went to a conference where the keynote speaker was deafblind uh, and using haptics and protactile and tactile sign language techniques, I just couldn't believe it. I thought it was just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And so from there, I found my way into rehabilitation science. It's when I started working a little bit as a research coordinator at what was at the time, the Montreal Association for the Blind. And through that, I then uh, got my first career award and ended up getting a university appointment at the School of Optometry. I became a certified low vision therapist along the way, because to me, the clinical perspective in research is extremely important. And for that, you need to have a hand in the clinical world to understand how this works. And here we are now, I'm a tenured university professor at the School of Optometry doing science, doing interviews about science. I just wanted to mention, you mentioned about the Montreal Association for the Blind. I wonder if in another life, uh, six or seven years ago, maybe we, we met because, because uh, I did my orientation mobility training through the Montreal Association for the Blind back in uh, maybe 20, I'm going to say 2014, maybe something like that, 2014, 2015. That's very possible because I left there in 2015. Yeah. That's a, that's a very long of a ride, uh, CV, and I, I can certainly relate to having this uh, multidimensional approach to, uh, to, to one's uh, educational training. Uh, I, I believe that you know, sometimes uh, pursuits that are very far from one another seemingly can, can provide a, a bit of synergy uh, and help one another. Uh, on that, do you, it is, uh, I, mean, I think it's like known that an average clinician doesn't understand that much about low vision rehabilitation. Uh, ophthalmologists or optometrists, like they, they, they treat vision, they try to improve and, 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 or, or maintain the vision of a patient. And once that vision is lost, it's, it's almost like a patient has died, like for that professional. Uh, uh, do you, given your right background, like, I mean, would you like to share any insights that could help an average clinician uh, understand uh, uh, a bit about low vision rehabilitation? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I talk to optometrists and ophthalmologists, uh, I can't really blame them for this perspective or for this perception that it's all about the eye, because when you guys go through your training, in med school, in optometry school, for years, 
it's all about the eye, right? It is all about the eye. It is about the bits and pieces of the eye, the anterior segment, the posterior segment. Some people find their way through the optic nerve to the brain, but most of them stay at the front of the face. And then suddenly you find yourself providing an important clinical service, which you are well trained for, and where you need to know about the eye. Right? The clients come to you, the patients come to you because you know about the eye. But the problem sometimes is that when you look through that slit lamp, you may forget that the eye is attached to an entire person and that there are many, many aspects to this person beyond the eye, even though they're linked to the eye, that may carry equal and sometimes even more important weight. And that is when eye care professionals often find themselves outside of their domain. I have heard um, you know, some of my best friends are ophthalmologists, but I've heard some of them say things like, when I can't save their vision, I have failed. And the thing is that this is not true. Um, I'll give you an example from knee surgery. If you would send somebody in to have their ACL repaired, it is at the time that the surgery is being booked, that the physiotherapists are already notified of the file that is coming down because on day X, person Y will have surgery, which means after two days of recovery, maybe sometimes one day, physiotherapy begins in order to maintain mobility, strengthen, you know, do all the things that need to be done. Some of these interventions begin before the surgery in order to build up muscle. Do any of these surgeons consider it a failure that the patient needs to go to rehab afterwards? Absolutely not. It is part of the continuum of care. Find me an ophthalmologist who would consider vision rehabilitation after injections for macular degeneration, an integrated part of care, instead of seeing it as a failure of their injection, it should be an integrated part of the referral process. And it turns out you don't have to wait until these injections are over. People still need to cook and bake and travel and read their mail and pay their bills, even while they're going through God knows how many years of injection. For this, they need visual skills, they need compensation mechanisms, they need assistive devices, they need other ways to compensate for what their vision can currently not do. It should not be a separate piece. It should be one continuum of care. So to me, that is uh, a big challenge that vision care still has to overcome because the rehabilitation piece is still considered a separate thing that we do when nothing more can be done. Turns out that's bullshit. We can always do something. You may not be able to do something by injecting something, but there is a lot that can still be done. So it sounds like there's, um, is, is the gap in the training or in the communication, which is in this case. So the communication between the ophthalmologist and the low vision rehab specialist uh, to say, hey, listen, I have a patient that's getting worse, might not go well, we should start 
integrating them into some, you know, low, low vision rehab now, um, or, uh, so it's not just this hard stop for transitioning from one profession to the other, or is the gap more in the, um, the training side for the ophthalmologist or, or both? There, these both definitely exist. There's more that exists than just these two barriers. Uh, glory, hallelujah to the day when the ophthalmologist will openly speak to a client about getting rehabilitation for their vision, uh, where this is not viewed in a failure, but this is viewed as another one of the tools in the crayon box. But you know what's also interesting is that Rehabilitation, when you look at the ophthalmologists or the optometrists for that matter, that are really discovering low vision as a treatment option, as a treatment field, it is often people that are in the last quarter of their career. These are people that are trying to find something where the remaining professional time for them has meaning. And they often discover that this meaning can be found in people where low vision service assessment and rehabilitation can make an immediate impact in these people's lives. It is also often at this time in their career that they're not looking for something where they will make $500,000 a year because they need to pay for their yacht. It turns out at that point in their career, the yacht's already paid for. And so they can actually do something that pays less. If you see a low vision client, it may take you a good 45 minutes to an hour to do everything you need to do with this person. Find me an uh, emergency ophthalmologist who has that much time. Uh, you know, many of the retina specialists I work with see a patient every five minutes and they do this all day because they've got a staff of 12 to make this happen. And I'm not criticizing this. This is important. It's important care to be given. But you can, it's hard to make money with low vision. Right? So this is another, pair, another piece of the puzzle here, another barrier in the, in the process that will often hinder people to be referred or seen. Yeah, I think you hit the nail in the head there. Like it's uh, people that go into low vision, they really have a different motivation than a financial gain. Uh, so, so we're coming to a wrap here. Could you, could you, uh, so what about the future for your lab and, mm -hmm. and, and maybe even in a broader way, uh, vision rehabilitation uh, itself? Uh, where do you think we're going to go from here over the next 10 years, let's say? I think that many of our research topics, but this also applies to our clinical topics we'll have to follow the demographics of our clientele. And I think that the next 20 years are going to be dominated by the baby boomers. Uh, this is not just because there are so many of them, but also because they will get a lot older than the generations before them. I think the baby boomers will be more likely to be centenarians. You know? So these people will live past 100. And healthcare at that extent of life it's going to be different than what we are used to today. We got a little bit of a glimpse into what happens in long-term care through the disasters of the pandemic. Uh, I believe that this, uh, the challenges of long-term care are going to grow exponentially over the next coming years. Um, it I think that people will live longer. I also believe they will live better longer right? because people 
are understanding more about the importance of health, physical, social, and mental activity and engagement, I think people will live better for longer, but things will pop up as we get older and it will create complexity. I think it is that complexity that we need to start being more open. We cannot allow ourselves anymore to do healthcare in a very isolated uh, domain focused way. I think that if I would have to live my life again, I would probably become a gerontologist or geriatrician because I would see that this is one of the professions that is very much at ease to look at the complexity of an entire age group. And I think that there's going to be great value and appreciation in this. For example, I find it interesting that when I talk about deaf blindness to the hearing care community, they are already much more open and curious about the vision side of things. Then when I speak to the vision care community, the hearing thing is still a little bit different and other, and it's not my domain and I don't really know that much about it. And I think that the vision care community in general will discover that that's not gonna be enough anymore. I think that we will have to open our minds a little bit beyond the retina, beyond the cornea, past the lens and the optic nerve and you know, include other pieces of the person, you know, take a global, more global picture. I think that's, uh, that's uh, certainly a lot to think about. And uh, um, I hate to say that there's any silver linings. I shouldn't say I hate to say there's any silver linings from the pandemic, but like you said, giving a, a glimpse of what happens in long-term care homes. And I think it puts that a little bit at the forefront uh, for people to, to think about. And it might be a glimpse into the future and, and some of the changes that need to um, that need to take place. So, uh, Walter, this has been, uh, this has been a lot of fun, um, and, and educational at the same time. So it's, uh, it's, uh, certainly been a, a pleasure speaking with you. Um, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, uh, we could probably have you back on the show again at some point in time. I think we could probably dive into myriad other topics as well. Um, so I just want to take the opportunity to, to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, gentlemen. Absolute pleasure. Bruno, Jean, until next time. Thank you, Walter.